everyone out there in podcast land. It is your boy, Danny Nerdnick. This is the Danny Nerdnick podcast, season one, episode three. And today we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. Quite literally, in fact, I expect the uh, arterial plaque that is in my heart from this particular food stuff uh, is in great supply. Today, we're going to talk about Jewish food. I am from Westport, Connecticut, and I come from a family of New York Jews, um, and I guess uh, some Indiana Jews, but we all go back to Eastern Europe, and coming from Eastern Europe, we carried traditions to the New World. And a lot of those traditions include food. In fact, I would say one of the biggest Jewish traditions would be food-related. A lot of our holidays are celebrated. I just want to make note, uh, I'm a Jewish atheist. That is to say, I'm culturally Jewish. I enjoy bagels and complaining. That's about the extent of my Jewish identity. Um, I'd like to say I'm Jew-ish. Jew-ish a little bit but not really. Uh, my Jewish identity really is just bagels and complaining. That's about it. Um, Jewish atheist. I, I'd like to think that a lot of people who grew up as Reformed Jews um, ended up, like me, as culturally Jewish, having a connection with their um, cultural heritage, but not necessarily wanting to follow through on the supernatural and um, religious traditions that follow uh, being Jewish. That said, my building, the building I live in, is owned by Hasidic landlords, and I got to tell you, they freak me out a little bit. It's it's not it's not the fact that they're Jewish, because then I'd freak myself out, which I do, but it's not because I'm uh, mildly Jewish. Um, it's it's because they're so adherent to all of the tenets of the religion outwardly. But like we've seen with uh, a lot of fundamentalist sects, there's probably some unsavory stuff going on under the hood, as it were. But we're not here to talk about my point of view when it comes to religious people and, and fundamentalist religious people. We're here to talk about Jewish food and how it's getting to be really, really hot right now. Before we do that, though, I just want to circle back and touch on a point I was going to make before I sidetracked myself. Um, a lot of Jewish holidays are celebrated by sitting around a table and eating. Really, the progression goes like this. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. So that's just what I was going to say about Jewish holidays and food. It's a, a bit of a tradition, I guess. Uh, Jews love food. We are a food culture. That's pretty much all I was going to say before I distracted myself. So if you haven't guessed by now, this episode's Food Trends segment is about Jewish food and its place in the modern spectrum of cuisine. So it seems to me, as someone who's been living in New York for a while now, that we're seeing a, a bit of a resurgence of the traditional New York Jewish foods. And by that I mean you know, your corned beef, your pastrami, your rye bread, 
uh, a lot of your smoked and cured fish, um, your bagels, I think, would be on that list, certainly. Your matzo ball soup is a biggie. But we're seeing a resurgence in places that are doing a lot of the traditional uh, Ashkenazi, that is to say Eastern European Jewish foods. We've got Sedels, we've got Russian Daughters, uh, we've got the reopening of the Carnegie Deli, we've got Katz's experiencing this kind of renaissance. You know, for the first time, I went to Katz's about a, about a year and a half ago. I know, I know, I've lived in the tri-state area nearly my whole life, except for a few years when I was living in Vermont. Danny Nerdnick, what the hell do you think you're doing not having gone to Katz's? I grew up Carnegie Deli. That's, I'm sorry, that's just how I grew up. My family would come into the city, we'd, we'd stay overnight, we'd go see a Broadway show, and inevitably we'd end up at a restaurant. I would always pull for Carnegie Deli because I always wanted corned beef on, on rye with Russian and my big matzo ball and my matzo ball soup. That was kind of the gold standard for me until I went to Katz's. And it turns out that Katz's Deli has the superior corned beef because you can get it not just lean, you can get it um, moist, as they call it, which has a little bit more fat to it. And I think it tastes a little bit better because the fat absorbs the salt from the cure. And it's just gorgeous. It has a little bit of chew to it, but it really just kind of melts in your mouth. Um, so we're seeing a resurgence of this traditionally Jewish cuisine. But I don't think it's a resurgence necessarily. Jewish cuisine, Jewish delicatessen food, has always been available in New York City. It has always been present. In fact, this, this type of food inspired the, the corner deli, the bodega sandwich thing. The whole, uh, let's go to the corner store and get a sandwich. If it weren't for these delis run, traditionally run by New York or by uh, Eastern European Jews who have come over, we wouldn't see um, kind of the change in guard in the bodega ownership. As you know, it, it used to be Jews and Italians and maybe the Irish, and then you'd get uh, Hispanic people, and now you have uh, Middle Eastern people running these establishments. And it all goes back to, uh, to immigrants, to Eastern European Jewish immigrants. Um, but I, I think the more important point here is you can't have a resurgence if something never went away. So maybe this isn't a resurgence. Maybe what it is is a rediscovery and uh, a reinvestment into that particular cuisine. Because in my opinion, you can go to Per Se. You can uh, go to Babo. You can go to Blue Hill. You can go to Jean-Georges or Le Cirque. You can go to any fine restaurant and have an amazing meal. But my soul food, the food that I identify with, my comfort food, corned beef sandwich, rye bread, Russian dressing, half-sour pickle, Dr. Brown's black cherry, and a big bowl of matzo ball soup. It's what I grew up with. That's where my heart is. And it's quite literally, as I said at the beginning, inside of my heart. So hopefully we'll see even more uh, traditional Jewish cuisine come up uh, this year. If to, to the end of 2016 and really um, firmly establish an even bigger foothold in the city of New York 
than it has previously. I I would love to see everybody sitting down, chowing down on a pastrami sandwich or a tongue sandwich or a, a corned beef sandwich, drinking a Dr. Brown's black cherry and having some matzo ball soup with a pickle. I think it would bring a little bit of harmony to the world. I mean, really, what problems can't you solve with corned beef? Coming up after the break, I'm going to describe in loving detail the history of corned beef. Um, and we might even go into uh, smoking and curing as the reason the human race survived. Isn't that interesting? So stick around. Uh, we'll be back after the break. See you shortly. Welcome back to the Danny Nerdnik podcast. It is my great pleasure today to talk about uh, salt cured beef and the products that you can make with it. Uh, so let's start by talking about corned beef. Corned beef, I think, is my favorite sandwich meat. And because of that, I wanted to do a little bit of research and find out the uh, background and a little bit of the history on corned beef. So, uh, research suggests that the Irish um, were not the inventors of corned beef, which uh, I, I think makes sense, even though uh, we'll associate the Irish with corned beef because corned beef and cabbage on St. Patrick's Day seems to be one of these historical, fantastic pairings. But it turns out that for St. Patrick's Day, traditionally, the Irish would eat Irish bacon and not corned beef. And the Irish would only start eating corned beef when they began to emigrate to the United States and would move into these neighborhoods where the Jews had already set up shop. So you would find kosher delis producing corned beef and pastrami from brisket. And the Irish were like, oh, that's, that's quite a delicious piece of meat there, uh, Mr. Weinstein. What do you call it? And the Jews would be like, oh, well, this is corned beef. And, uh, well, you know, when you have a sandwich of this, might as well go to Shlomo the baker and uh, get some of the rye bread, and we can all be friends. So it looks like corned beef uh, and pastrami and these cured meat products brought together two different societies, brought together two different ethnic groups of, of immigrants, the Jews and the Irish. Um, so research says that beef, corned or otherwise, wasn't often eaten in I ancient Ireland because the cow was considered a symbol of wealth in the Gaelic religion. Uh, the Irish would enjoy dairy products, which didn't require the slaughtering of the animal, which would look, which would be looked upon as, you know, losing some of your wealth. Um, it looks like beef was often reserved for royalty with pig, with pork being the most eaten meat in Ireland at that point in time. It wasn't until uh, the 16th century when England conquered Ireland that the cow turned from an animal of deference to a food commodity. The British uh, gained their taste for beef because of the ancient Romans. Isn't that awesome? 
two two episodes in a row now we're seeing the effect the Romans had on modern society through the ages because of the Roman conquest of what they would call the world we now have in our modern cities wine and cheese and beautiful vistas and corned beef <laughs> that's amazing uh, maybe one of these days we'll take a look back at Roman food culture and the way it made its way from Rome to the rest of the world. But that, as they say, will be another episode. It looks like the English brought in thousands of heads of cattle from the Irish countryside to the tables of English urbanites. And in the 1660s, a series of so-called cattle acts enacted by the English Parliament prohibited the export of cattle to England and kept the Irish beef at home in Ireland. This drove down cattle prices and made the meat more abundant and affordable. Now, salting beef has been a means of preserving for time immemorial, thousands and thousands of years. But it looks like the term corned beef dates back to around the time of the Cattle Act. It seems that the word corn, and there are a couple of explanations for this. I'm going to go through them and we're going to uh, see which one fits better. Hit me in the comments section below or on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. I'll give you the addresses later on and tell me what you think, which ones you think are more plausible. So it looks like the word corn originally came from the Germanic word kernum, which meant small seed. But in the 17th century, uh, salted beef started taking on the name corned beef in some parts of England. I guess maybe it would have come from Cornwall. Cornish pasties come from there. It would just kind of make sense to me. Uh, in some parts of England, it took on the name corned beef because of the large kernels of rock salt used to preserve it. Corned beef uh, grew popular in England, but Ireland was actually the hub of production for corned beef due to the abundance of cows and a lower salt tax, which is about one-tenth of England's. Because of these lower salt taxes, Irish companies were uh, better able to import higher quality white salt, usually from Portugal or Spain. And because uh, in good corned beef, the quality of, quality of the salt is just as important as the cut of beef, the Irish developed a reputation for excellent products. In the city of Cork in southern Ireland, uh, corned beef trade became the big thing it, it became the center of corned beef trade and uh through the 17th and beginning of 18th centuries they would be shipping out half of the beef that the country produced irish corned beef became such a commodity that it dominated transatlantic trade providing provisions for both sides of the anglo-french war uh to the west indies and to the new world cities like new york and philadelphia unfortunately because everybody was super into corned beef the price spiked high enough that once again, the people who made it couldn't afford to eat it. And then they settled for pork and a new crop, the Irish potato. And if you are a student of history, you'll know what happened in the 1840s. It's the great Irish potato famine. And we all make fun of it because, you know, oh, look at Paddy with his, his potatoes. Oh, they're all gone. It's not funny. It's not funny. The Irish starved. It, it, I mean, it took their number one crop, the food that they could afford to eat, and did away with it. So because of that, Irish immigration to the United States began to really pick up. So 
the Irish would settle in urban areas like New York and Philadelphia, and they'd be making more money than their brethren back home. And because of this, this fact that they were making more money, they were able to afford more easily the corned beef that was made in their adopted homeland of the United States. Now, this might be more of an urban myth, but it's also said that the Irish began to love corned beef again because of their Jewish neighbors. Uh, and at the turn of the century, the largest immigrant populations in New York were duly the Irish and the Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, and they would be settling in the same urban neighborhoods. The two populations began to kind of mix cultures. And due to the Jewish religion's dietary restrictions, an influx, an influx of kosher butchers to New York uh, and the Irish, Jew, Irish and Jewish neighborhoods therein made it so that the Irish would buy their meat from the kosher, kosher, yeah, kosher butchers. Say that ten times fast. Kosher butcher, kosher butcher, kosher butcher, blah, 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 blah. I can't do it. So brisket, which is a really popular cut of beef with kosher butchers, became uh, the number one cut. It was an overwhelming favorite at New York City kosher butcher shops. And the Smithsonian Magazine points out that it's likely kosher butchers use this particular cut of meat uh, to make corned beef. And the Irish were like, hey, this is freaking awesome. So it looks like corned beef has Irish roots. It was really perfected by the Jews, by the Eastern European Jewish immigrants. Um, from the Wikipedia... Uh, it says that in North America, corned beef dishes are associated with traditional Irish cuisine. However, there is considerable debate about the association of corned beef with Ireland. Uh, Mark Kurlansky, uh, author of Salt, states that the Irish produced a salted beef around the Middle Ages that was a forerunner of what today is known as Irish corned beef. And in the 17th century, the English named the Irish salted beef corned beef, um, but some say it wasn't until the 18th century Irish immigration to the United States that much of the Irish, ethnic Irish began to first consume corned beef dishes like they're seen today. Uh, the popularity of corned beef compared to bacon among the immigrant Irish may have been due to corned beef being a luxury product in their native land while it was cheaply and readily available uh, in America. Today in Ireland, however... Uh, the serving of corned beef is geared more towards tourist consumption, and most, Ire most Irish in Ireland do not identify the ingredient as native cuisine. But the Jewish population was producing similar salt-cured meat uh, made from beef brisket, which the Irish immigrants purchased as corned beef from Jewish butchers. So this is just confirming all of the, um, all of the information and research that, that I've done. So it looks like corned beef um, is from Ireland, but interestingly enough, the salting and curing of meat goes back to when we were cavemen. And the story goes like this. I learned this at CIA, uh, Culinary Institute of America, during my garden manger class, as taught by Chef Clemens Averbeck, who, if you are out there, Chef, and listening, please get in touch. I'd love to pick your brain for future episodes. It's a little personal appeal to an old friend. It seems, and this is how the story goes, that back in the day, like way back when we were cavemen, we would put our meat by the fire to drive off animals and bugs to make sure it wouldn't be eaten by marauding creatures. But the smoke that would stick to the meat protected it and preserved it 
for long periods of time, with the unintentional upside of giving it a delicious, smoky flavor. Another thing that pre-industrial civilizations, pre-Roman civilizations, leading into these civilizations, of course, would do would be to take uh, their food and pack it in salt that they would get from the ocean to uh, preserve it. I don't know exactly how we discovered that salt was a preserving agent, but guess what? It works. So salting plus smoking equaled preservation of food, which is really, really cool. This comes from the Sun Sentinel, uh, tracing the history of the Jewish American Deli by David A. Schwartz. This is from March 19th, 2013. The delicatessen has long been a part of Jewish life in America. Deli scholar Ted Merwin, whose forthcoming book Pastrami on Rye, I guess it's out now and has been for a while, Pastrami on Rye, an overstuffed history of the Jewish deli, traces the rise of the delicatessen in the U.S. Said Katz's, which opened on the Lower East Side of New York City in 1888, and they're still producing the best freaking corned beef in the city. 1888. That's amazing. That's awesome. So uh, it seems that Katz's is the forerunner. It's the number one, the first Jewish deli that opened in the city of New York in 18 freaking 88. Awesome. Ted Merwin is an associate professor of religion and Judaic studies at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. He discussed the Jewish-American delicatessen in 2013 during a meeting of the Jewish Genealogical Society of Broward County at the Soraf JCC in Plantation, Florida. Uh, he says that Katz's soon became the prime gathering place for the Jewish community on par with the synagogue. Huh. Interesting. Like I said in the first segment, the Jewish culture has a really big soft spot for food. So it makes sense that the secondary gathering place other than the synagogue would be the delicatessen where you could go and, you know, have your your phosphate or seltzer and your sandwich and your matzo ball soup and hang out with other Jews. But here's the thing. Most delicatessens weren't restaurants, but takeout stores. It wasn't like they are now with table service, although I expect they probably were there probably were tables for sitting down but they weren't strictly restaurants so you didn't have a sandwich you'd go in and you'd buy a platter of meat and most of the time that meat was corned beef pastrami and tongue uh so people would eat meat and celebrate being american this is so cool the the jewish experience in america is it, it shouldn't be separated into cultures or religion this is a uniquely American experience. It's incredible to see that this this history, this activity of going to a restaurant and hanging out and having it be the center of your your cultural life aside from the center of your religious life kind of translates to coffee shop culture and tea shop culture. So you can see the thread that connects Jewish deli culture to modern hipsters going to the coffee shop or bagel shop to have a coffee and sit down and write on their laptop. I mean, it's it's amazing the connections that you can draw when you just look a couple hundred years into the past. Now, in order to Americanize and really integrate into wider American culture, the delicatessens in the more populous midtown uh, New York City near Broadway, uh, like Lindy's and Rubens, weren't 
kosher, and they would become hangouts for entertainers like Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, and George Jessel. It's said that the gangster Arnold Rothstein had his own table at Lindy's. The well-known Carnegie Deli and restaurant and stage deli opened in the 1930s, and those are also not kosher. But that isn't to say that you can't get a fine sandwich at either of those locations. Like I said, growing up, I was a Carnegie Deli guy. It's Carnegie Deli, corned beef on rye, Russian dressing, and a matzo ball soup with a Dr. Brown's black cherry to drink. Delicious. By the 1950s, huge overstuffed sandwiches showed that Jews had made it in America. And now, even in the Midwest, you'll find places that try to do New York Jewish deli sandwiches. You'll find places everywhere. In fact... Uh, L.A. has some of the finest New York Jewish-style delis on the planet, although they'll say it's just Jewish style because we, we have we have the, the Jews out here who have, you know, taken over Hollywood and banking. The number of delis declined with Jewish migration to the suburbs, continued into the 1970s where there were major health concerns about the meat that was produced because there's a lot of salt, a lot of fat, and a lot of Jews turned against deli food, which... I, come on, you're only here on this planet once. You only get one shot. Might as well eat the most delicious foods you can find. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. But it seems like once the deli began to decline, the food itself would become more mainstream. You can find corned beef and pastrami at any grocery store deli counter that you go to. And... I'd like to think that Jewish deli culture had a lot to do with this. Now, let me let me just talk about my family history for a second. On my mother's side, my grandmother's family in particular was a, a food producer family. So it really makes sense that I ended up going to Culinary Institute of America and, and becoming a food person because going back a uh, hundred years, the I think it's the Greenstein side of my family was producing pickles. We were producing corned beef. We would, or my family would produce barrels of pickles, uh, cucumbers, tomatoes, carrots, all of the pickles, onions that you know from your Jewish deli, pack them in brine in wooden barrels. And this is just what I've heard from uh, my cousin Joe Green and my grandmother Phyllis Holson. Uh, they told me that when they were kids, they, they remember the tail end of this, packing the pickles into barrels and bringing it into New York City and distributing the pickles to different delis. I'm not entirely sure which delis. I expect a lot of the ones in New York make their own pickles, but it's it's entirely possible that, um, that Greenstein family pickles uh, made their way to a lot of the famous delis in the city. On that tasty note, I think we're going to go to a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about how to make corned beef in your very own home. So stick around.
Welcome back to the Danny Nerdnik podcast. Today we're talking about corned beef, maybe the most perfect sandwich meat. So we've talked about the history. We've talked about where it's coming from, where it's going to. The only thing we haven't really talked about is how to make it. So corned beef is a multiphasic process. That is to say, there are many different steps on, uh, that you need to go through to make the final product. The first step is brining, which is like curing, except it's done wet. Um, so I guess you could say it's a wet cure, if you will. The second step is boiling. And the third step is steaming until it's completely tender. So, <clears throat> here are your ingredients, uh, line by line, for the corned beef. This is from the Food Network, uh, and the author of the recipe is David Rosengarten. Thank you very, very much. Here we go. Here are the ingredients. One one-and-one-half-pound brisket. Four cups water. Two cups kosher salt. One teaspoon saltpeter which I'm sure you can get uh, at your specialty food store. I would assume Whole Foods has some. If not, you can get it on Amazon. Five bay leaves, seven cloves of garlic smashed, one quarter teaspoon ground cloves, two teaspoons whole peppercorns, one teaspoon allspice berries, one teaspoon mustard seeds, one cup white vinegar, one half cup white sugar. Uh, for the steamer pot, one quarter teaspoon cloves, two teaspoons peppercorns, one teaspoon allspice berries, one teaspoon mustard seed, three cloves of garlic, and a quarter cup of salt. So here is your method. Are you sitting comfortably? Are you ready? Here we go. So you're going to place all of the ingredients uh, except for the garlic and the brisket in a large pan. You're going to bring it all to boil. Uh, that is to say, um, the first set of ingredients, not the adding to a steamer pot ingredients. So the brisket, you're going to hold back. The garlic, you're going to hold back. But into a pot, uh, you're going to put the water, for the four quarts water, the two cups kosher salt, one teaspoon saltpeter, five bay leaves, one quarter cup ground, oh, sorry, one quarter teaspoon, haha, ground cloves, two teaspoons whole peppercorn, one teaspoon allspice berry, one teaspoon mustard seed, one cup white vinegar, and a half cup of white sugar into a pot and bring it to a boil and cool. Then you're going to put the garlic and the brisket into a non-reactive pot and cover with the brining liquid. Then you're going to cover with a plate and a weight for three weeks and turn uh, the brisket over after one and a half weeks. So you're probably wondering, why do we need to do this? What exactly is the purpose of this? Well, let me tell you. Brining something, a food item, is the difference between stringy, dry, flavorless meat and moist, melt-in-your-mouth delicious meat. Now, this principle can be applied to everything from pork chops to chicken to, th to your Thanksgiving turkey. And here, what it's doing is it's uh, breaking down some of the connective tissue, as well as um, creating an equilibrium in the piece of meat between the fat, or sorry, the liquid and the salt and sugar. So really, you're just kind of pushing flavor into the piece of meat while making it more tender, 
keeping it moist and um, allowing it because of the saltpeter to keep the rosy pink color that we all associate with the perfectly cooked corned beef or pastrami. So uh, after your three weeks, if you are patient, which you must be, your patience will be rewarded. Remember, patience is a virtue. You're going to add to the steamer pot. Uh, that's that's like a big rondo. And if you can find a cover, uh, because keep in mind, you can't braise if it's not covered. And that's essentially what we're doing. So you're going to remove the meat from the brine and you're going to rinse it and pat it dry. It's not really important to pat it dry. I'm just OCD about my food. So if I take something out of liquid, I want it to be dry before I put it into the next process, next phase of the process. So you're going to add enough water to the steamer pot to reach just below the bottom of the steamer. Another thing you could do here, if you really are intent on bringing more flavor to the party, you could use uh, beef stock instead of water, uh, which would be a really good thing. Just add some more beefy flavor to it. Uh, that's that's nice. So you're going to add enough, uh, just add just enough water to that steamer pot to reach just below the bottom of the steamer. Uh, then you're going to put the meat into it and steam it for three hours until tender. Now, this isn't the end of the process, you see, because after these three hours, sure, you're going to have tender corned beef, but you're still going to have a lot of uh, connective tissue in there, and you want to break that down. So after the braising, which this really is because if you were just steaming, the water or the liquid would be uh, on the bottom, and you would have a rack where you put your uh, your meat just, just above so it doesn't make contact with the liquid. But here what you're doing is you are putting pretty much half of the meat into liquid, which to me sounds very much like a braise. After you're finished braising your three hours or so, depending on the size of the brisket in question, you're going to pull it out. And then when you're ready to serve, you're going to give it another steam for about 20 minutes, half an hour, and that's going to heat it back up and make it really, really tender and nice. So let's go over this all again. A brine. A brine is a liquid with salt and sweetener uh, and herbs and spices, which you're going to use to tenderize, moisturize, and flavorize. Uh, and that's going to be a long period of time, so you can so you can really let everything um, just get in, just percolate and absorb and get deep into that meat. Then, after three weeks, after turning halfway through, you're going you're going to braise it in. I would go uh, beef stock. Uh, and herbs and spices and some garlic um, for three hours, uh, covered, of course. And then uh, once you're ready, you're going to uh, steam it to heat it back up and get it nice and tender. Get Make sure that fat is uh, melty and delicious. And by then, the whole thing's going to melt in your mouth and it's going to be awesome. But remember, you want to cut as thin as possible or you go as thick as you like, it's up to you. Uh, just make sure to um, cut against the grain so you have uh, short pieces of muscle fiber. That's going to make for your most tender bite. All right. I guess that's uh, that's corned beef for you. Stick with us through the break. I'll say some goodbyes, some thank yous. Stick around. Get out. 
Welcome back to the Danny Nerdnik podcast. I wanted to thank you all for giving us a listen, sharing uh, the podcast on various social media platforms, and being part of what I hope is going to be a, a fairly successful podcast. So thanks again uh, for sticking sticking around and sticking through. Um, give us a like, give us a share on Facebook, give us a retweet. Um, send your friends to the SoundCloud page. That's where we're hosted. Uh, anything you can do to help put the Danny Nerdnik podcast in the consciousness of your friends and family would really be appreciated. Let's make this thing go, huh? All right. So, um, I guess that kind of wraps things up for today, uh, for this episode, season one, episode three. Next time, I haven't really decided what we're going to do yet, but I'm sure it's going to be a doozy. Hit us up on Twitter at Danny underscore Nerdnik, on Facebook at the Danny Nerdnik podcast, at Instagram, which is Oh No They Got Me. I'm sorry, no, on Instagram, which is Eat ribs underscore listen to the number two fish p h i s h like the band. Uh, that's also my username on Reddit. Eat ribs underscore listen to the number two fish, and you can get us on iTunes, the Google Play Store, and of course SoundCloud.com slash Danny underscore Nerdnik. Thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, don't do anything I wouldn't do, and if you do, do it well. <laughs>